In this episode, I'm going to talk about gnomes. Don't laugh, or maybe laugh a little, it's fine. You know what you're picturing when I say the word gnome. It's the garden gnome with a pointy red hat and a long white beard. Little man from folklore with maybe a watering can or a pair of wellies on. It's kitsch, it's camp, it's, it's whatever. The thing is, gnomes exist across almost all European folklore, by one name or another. Mischievous creatures that live in the woods or up in the hills, sometimes trolls, sometimes imps, sometimes something else, are a staple part of how we consider our landscape. They might shine your shoes in exchange for a bowl of porridge left out overnight, or bother your farm animals if you don't set aside a few coins whenever you sell your harvest. But they're always capricious, protective, and susceptible to bargains. Unlike other stories of fey folk and elves, gnomes take an earthier, less flighty approach. Sure, they have strange customs, but if you make a deal with a gnome to protect your family, they'll honour that indefinitely, provided the terms remain met. I'm not here to argue that the folkloric gnome, as you're picturing him right now, exactly exists. But certain places undeniably have spirits to them. Spirits which protect them, or at least cause problems for those who would wish them harm. There are no burrows, though. No little houses to be found. And why would there be? There's no reason to dig apertures beneath the earth, if you're made of it. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. There's a spot in Chiswick where three train lines meet. The overground runs north to south, arching over from the west across North London towards Stratford. The district line bisects east to south between Chiswick Park and Gunnersbury. And the Piccadilly line runs directly east to west over the top of it. It's a charming tan line shaped patch that marks, I think, the very outer bastion of what could still be considered central London where you could feasibly bike up to the city as a daily commute, provided you're willing to brave the psychotic cycling infrastructure of Westminster Council on your way through. If you cross the street from Chiswick Park tube station and turn right, you'll come across a gated entrance to what could easily be mistaken for parking for the block of flats next door. If you open the gate and walk inside, though, you'll find a path leading through to a patch of sheltered green wetland, tucked away in the odd little armpit of the three rail lines. This is the Gunnersbury Triangle Nature Reserve. Originally a neglected set of allotments that were due for redevelopment, a campaign by local residents led to the site's protection at a landmark planning inquiry in 1983. The site was then taken over by the local council and the London Wildlife Trust, who converted it into a nature reserve and opened it up to the public in 1985. It's a really interesting site to look around, 
precisely because it's such an odd duck among nature reserves. Unlike sites outside of the city, which are normally already hotspots for local wildlife prior to being nominated, the triangle was mostly overgrown allotments, covered in pleasant but low-value self-seeding trees and the remnants of various sheds. The area had been excavated multiple times in order to build the train lines, and now functioned as basically a big basin for rainwater, not quite a lake and not quite a forest. Luckily, we have a word for that sort of thing. Swampland. Okay, that's not the official designation. Wetland habitat is what you'll find on most of the signs. But swampy it most definitely is. A crisscross of ponds and standing water, a little patch of permanently damp mud with trains in every direction and planes coming in towards Heathrow overhead. This type of environment is amazing for the little creatures. Newts, toads, frogs, hoverflies, all sorts of stinky and creepy and gross crawly beasties thrive in the swamp. Not least because it's distinctly hostile to modern human development patterns. All across the UK, new suburban housing developments tarmac over the network of natural springs that used to feed our swamps and wetlands. We've built a drained world without drainage, a layer of pressed asphalt separating the water above from the water below, flooding us in two directions. Councils all across the country are looking for places to install what are known as Sustainable Urban Drainage Solutions, or SUDS, to try to replicate what nature already had an answer for in the swamp. Swampland, you see, is an in-between state. Neither tidally directed river, nor sturdy, reliable earth. It's messy. It invites mess. Witches live in swamps. Unknown beings emerge from swamps. Proto-humans drown in and are eventually retrieved from swamps. Nobody makes money off a swamp. Swamps only make one thing, and it's totally worthless. Life. I need to rewind a little, to a time before the swamp overtook the Gunnersbury Triangle. I've mentioned that it was allotments prior to the campaign to convert it to a nature reserve. That's true, but it's not the whole story. There are allotments all over the city, and although there's definitely been a decline in allotment space across London, many of them have been in place for decades, and have long enough wait lists to guarantee their ongoing survival. People still desire a little patch of land to call their own, a place to grow their own fruit and veg, to experiment in the earth. And that's always been the case. The allotments within the Triangle, though, were different. They didn't have a wait list. The site wasn't well loved. It wasn't even particularly well cared for. Even before it was fully cleared, it was pretty neglected. The swampiness of the ground meant that very few wanted to rent a patch, since it was like trying to farm in soup. Humans are inventive sorts, and there's something for any soil type, but compared to the sturdier ground you could find elsewhere, Gunnersbury Triangle just wasn't attractive farmland. 
And that's before you even get into the rumours. Tenants reported strange sounds coming from the surrounding woods while they attempted to cultivate the land, and would return the next day to find everything they planted mysteriously uprooted, as if it had been pushed out from below. Plots would shift and distort, their cleanly delineated rectangular fence lines italicising themselves over time, shimmering like mirages and upsetting gardeners whose green beans were now mysteriously part of their neighbour's allotment. That's far from the worst of it. One allotment holder reported dropping their wedding ring into the dirt while the rain lashed down overhead, and watching it disappear down into a sinkhole before they could get it back. He reached down into the wet, swirling mud, desperate to grab it, scrabbling into the earth up to his elbow and then, he swears to this day, he felt a hand, with too many fingers, grab him from below for a second, and begin to pull. The swamp at Gunnersbury might be artificial, but that doesn't prevent drowning. The proposed redevelopment schemes of Gunnersbury Triangle were numerous, and aren't easy to sum up into a single category. But generally speaking, we'd have been looking at a variety of mixed-use flats and shopping opposite the station. Not quite as progressive as modern mixed-use developments, but still the type of thing that a lot of Londoners have been crying out for in the past few years. I need to talk a little at this point about what development means in a modern city, and contextualise the big arguments around it. To massively oversimplify an entire academic discipline, there's a faction out there who will find reasons to oppose almost any development. They're pejoratively referred to as NIMBYs, an acronym for Not In My Backyard, from the idea that, of course, they support new housing or whatever you want to build, just not right there, in my backyard. Of course, almost no one would ever self-describe as a NIMBY, the concerns are always rooted in environmentalism or worry about the character of the area, often thinly disguised racism, something of that nature. Accusations of nimbyism really started, or at least flared up, around the time when wind farms started to crop up out in the rural parts of Britain. But you also see a lot of it where proposals for high-rise housing appear in a spot previously better known for Victorian terraces. These buildings destroy the skyline, they say, not to mention bringing a vast number of new residents into an area ill-prepared with public resources to handle them. To counter this argument, a lot of cities now have a YIMBY faction, the self-consciously titled Yes in My Backyarders. They operate on WhatsApp groups and message boards, showing out to support new building projects, particularly mixed-use housing in poor areas. The argument goes that we have a housing crisis at the moment, with the prices to rent or buy property kept artificially high by a lack of supply in the inner city. Those who identify with the Yimby label 
tend to be socially well-connected and civic-minded, attending planning meetings and writing to their councillors in support of housing. I respect it on some level. I don't think it's the most well-thought-through type of activism, but it's effective, and it tends to be coupled with a generalised interest in urbanism and densification that I support. Greater density with less cars makes better cities, more vibrant culture, better opportunities for everyone. That said, if the Yimbys had been around back when Gunnersbury Triangle was created, it almost definitely wouldn't have been converted to a wildlife reserve. It was, after all, a patch of low-lying artificial swampland with very little in the way of rare or protected species, and it was in the middle of an incredibly well-connected and increasingly desirable part of West London. It's directly opposite a tube station and close to the overground, There are pubs and schools nearby. Sure, the trains might be a little loud, but that's nothing a little insulation wouldn't fix. Hell, I'd live there. The campaigners for a nature reserve, though, recognised what was happening at other developments in the 80s, and had a perceptive vision of what was to come. Urbanism wasn't the developed pop cultural field it is now, all YouTube channels and subreddits. The London Cycle Network proposed by the Greater London Council back in the 80s barely included any actual bike lanes, and was instead really just a flimsy map of back streets that you could use to avoid motorways. The chances that any development slated for the 1980s would have actually improved the area seem... slim. And in fairness to them, that's still the case for a lot of developments today. In my neighbourhood, I've seen dozens of little flats and annexes spring up on underused plots of land, and although it's better than nothing at all, these flats are often laughably bad. Constructed to minimum space standards with leaky roofs and odd-shaped rooms you couldn't fit a double bed into, they're then marketed as luxury flats and sold for north of half a million pounds. Many of them somehow managed to cost exactly £590,000, A shocking coincidence, given the cap for help to buy mortgages is £600,000, which means that they go to wealthy young professionals as their first home, and are then sold on to landlords at a significant loss after a few years. It's basically a way of laundering a buy-to-rent property empire through state subsidies for the aspiring middle class. These decaying tower blocks are a blight on the landscape, designed to foster a community just as flighty and disconnected as landlorded slum flats, and in 20 years we're going to see what it looks like once the concierge and the residence gym has been stripped out in favour of even more subdivided bedsits. People need houses, sure, but this... this is shit. Whatever they decided to build on the Gunnersbury Triangle would have no doubt fed into the same system, with the added nightmare that 80s design would have invariably led to more car parks and more dangerous roads. The activists knew this, and they also knew that dropping concrete on what could be a green space would invariably make things worse for everyone nearby. And that's to say nothing of the creatures 
living within the triangle. The allotments weren't all under attack from below. There was one in particular which was always pristine, right to the end. It belonged to an elderly man who had lived in the area for his entire life, whose approach to gardening always seemed much more relaxed than his results would suggest. Year after year, he'd produced the most amazing vegetables in his shaded little patch of swamp, winning prize after prize at the local farmer's markets. He never used weed killer, but he never seemed to have anything grow without his permission. His name was Albert, and I guess he knew the secret of the swamp. He'd visit his allotment once a week, every Sunday right after church, and tinker around in his shed or tend the plants some. He never stayed for too long, he had to get home for dinner, but he'd always leave a little something behind, usually wrapped in a handkerchief. A couple of slices of buttered bread and a pad of jam for my helpers, he'd say, when pressed on it. When he returned the next week, the bread was often still there. Sometimes it had been picked apart by animals or washed out by the rain. The other allotment holders would complain that it was attracting vermin, but there's no real evidence of that. The bread mostly just sat there. Mostly. Once in a while, he'd return to find the bread gone, the handkerchief neatly folded, and his work for the week all done in advance. Plants watered, errant branches trimmed, everything set aside and tidied up afterwards. No one could ever explain it properly, and some of the other allotment holders took it all as a big joke. Some were even suspicious of Albert as the only person with a pristine plot in an otherwise blighted site. But once, a kid from a local school who had heard rumours of strange activity within the Triangle camped out there on a rainy night and saw, stretching from a puddle next to Albert's shed, a long, spindly arm, dirt green, slick with mud, with more fingers than there ought to be carefully opening the tied bindle in front and taking the contents down into the earth with them. Albert died in 1978 and with him whatever he knew about the inner workings of the swamp. But whatever it was that he was bribing didn't go away. The trouble with Yimbyism, I think, is simple. Ultimately, the problem isn't about whether development as a broad, undifferentiated category is good or bad. It's about what the development actually does. There's a type of ideological liberalism to the Yimby Manifesto which occludes the most important question, the one at the heart of every social dilemma. Where does the power lie? A mixed-use high-rise building isn't inherently good or bad, it's just concrete and mortar. The question is, who owns it? Who benefits? 
You can build a million homes, but if nobody can afford them, what's the point? If all the profits go to people who are already millionaires, to landlords, to private islands and guarded borders, how's that an improvement? 2022 figures show almost 35,000 long-term vacant homes in London. For comparison, that's enough to shelter the entire unhoused population of the city three times over. The housing crisis is artificial, a construction of private developers and land speculators. You can't build your way out of a crisis by having faith in the same deregulated system of capitalist property hoarding that created it in the first place. The only thing that will solve the housing crisis, such as it is, is massive socialised housing works and the mandatory repossession of these zombie property empires, bringing them back to the people. The rangy, wet arms of the swamp demand respect. They won't be concreted over, devoured by capital, sacrificed for another private band-aid non-answer to a social problem. They will honour their promises. And they won't cooperate with those who don't. There was one figure who became the spearhead of the pro-development side of the fight for Gunnersbury Triangle. His name was Geoffrey Byrne, and he served as a ward councillor for the area, having made a name for himself in property development across West London. In 1982, a small group of campaigners had temporarily occupied the site to prevent additional surveys and to push the case for wildlife preservation and Byrne had repeatedly called them out by name in local council meetings, furiously railing against their tree-hugging, lefty, hippy-dippy bullshit that was keeping Chiswick stuck in the past. It all came to a head one stormy night in November. We don't know what possessed Byrne to visit the site at 11.30pm, but locals remember him drinking heavily in the old packhorse pub on the corner down by Turnham Green, and yelling about how they were fucking the whole area up, prior to heading over there. Protesters were mostly camped out towards the rear of the site. A couple of them would stay each night, carefully bedding down in one of the few reliably dry bits in the northwest corner. Byrne didn't head in that direction, though. Footprints in the mud showed him walking unsteadily in through the entrance gate and down the little hill into the woods, before veering left, south, towards the swampy section. We can infer from his heavy footsteps and the trail of smashed vegetation that he was weaving back and forth off the path, and some yelling was heard by people in the camp, quickly dismissed as drunks at the train station, although who really knows. The trail runs down towards what was once Albert's allotment, where the remains of his shed still stood, although now mostly reclaimed by swamp and forest. There's evidence that Byrne tried to kick through one of the walls of the flimsy wooden structure, although it's unclear for why. Maybe just directionless lashing out. And then, the trail goes abruptly dead.
Byrne was never seen again after that wet November night. The muddy ground left clear footprints running in, but nothing coming back out again. Just the cold, sucking mud of the triangle. Oh, and one more thing. On the spot next to the shed, where his footprints suddenly disappear. A single, neatly folded handkerchief. Next episode of Subterraneans, Citronella, the Backweb, and malicious intelligences from the Vampire Castle. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subterpod on Twitter or by email through subterpod at gmail.com. As always, Subterraneans is entirely written, recorded, and scored by me, so I need to ask my listeners to help with promotion. If you know anyone who you think might enjoy Subterranean's podcast, please pass it on to them. I'd love to drag a few more souls underground. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran, Alex, Isaac, Andrew, Ellie, and Sparrow. Yeah, what's that clicking noise? That's Fred. He's a metronome. Stupid. Thanks for listening. <laughs>